You're listening to the Library Pros Podcast with Chris and Bob, a techie librarian and a computer IT guy discussing libraries, technology, and all things this side of the reference desk. Thanks, Carl. Hi, and welcome to episode 87 of the Library Pros Podcast. I'm Chris, and Bob had an IT emergency, so he was planning on coming today, but it looks like he may pop in later, or he may not, depending on how bad that IT crisis is. I guess when you're an IT guy, you always have to put out a fire. So today we're coming to you remotely from the booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, and hopefully Bob will come from the Emma S. Clark Memorial Library over in Setauket, New York. The Library Pros Podcast is a bi-monthly podcast, so please subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find podcasts. And please check us out on Twitter at the Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com slash librarypros. Consider leaving a review or tell someone about us because word of mouth is the best way to help this podcast grow. So today we are fortunate to have as a return guest, Carlos Galliana. He's a technology trainer in the library world, and he was actually a mover and shaker for a library journal. So he's actually our first return mover and shaker. So now he's in Seattle, Washington, where he was in, in Oregon before. And he joined us on episode 45, talking about his work with the Multnomah County Public Library. So we're going to speak with Carlos today about digital well-being as part of planning tech programming, because in the days in, in, of post-COVID, we have to worry about Zoom burnout and how do we actually convey what we're teaching to somebody who may not have their camera on or, or all those things and may, whether or not they even really want to be there. So let's catch up with Carlos and see what he's been up to since we last spoke. It's great having you back on the podcast. And when we last spoke, you were fairly new minted uh, mover and shaker when you were over at Multnomah. So how have you expanded what you did there and in your new endeavor? Thanks, Chris. Yeah, it's good to be back with you. And I've, I feel like I've grown so much since we last spoke. And I'm excited to share kind of some of the things I've learned over the years, yes, but I, I relocated to the Washington Washington State uh, just for family reasons and kind of started new kind of career opportunities. Uh, but I'm still involved with libraries in some capacity, whether that's uh, uh, doing contract work or you know I've done some volunteer work in the past. And the way I've grown um, was through just investing in myself and my skills and learning new new skills, and primarily with video editing and learning how to use Canvas. Uh, just really getting better on that virtual instruction piece. And one of the things that I, I did uh, back in early 2019 was I had this like favorite patron, this library patron that I always worked with. And when I told him I was relocating to Washington, he we agreed to stay in touch. And then we started meeting virtually about, you know, twice a month or so through Hangouts and uh, he would, we would talk about iPads and, you know, Windows 10 and, and uh, Chrome and all kinds of things. And through this gentleman, uh, we were, I was able to improve my, my skills as a virtual instructor. And then when the pandemic hit, I was really fortunate that I was able really to slide in uh, through teaching virtually just through my experience with that um, individual. Uh, so that was it was in a way I was really fortunate that, that I was able to really uh, work on my skills before the pandemic started. And it was a low pressure setting where I was able to work with this individual. He's a friend uh, and we had this trusted relationship. So, yeah, I've just been really working on my skill set and just working on uh, teaching virtually. Well, you know, it's really interesting in that I know that just from what I do 
it's getting harder and harder to devote more than maybe a half hour's worth of time to learn something new. Um, yeah. And it's not because I don't want to, and it's not because my my job won't let me. It's just that there are so many things crammed into a day that it's hard to, to sit and learn Canva or learn learn a new piece of software or learn about some of the updates in Adobe or things like that. Where For me now, it's more of like, you know, learn on the fly, figure it out, sink or swim. So in some respects, the pandemic kind of helped with that. And, and for you, leaving Multnomah and being able to have that flexibility sounds like it really opened you up to start learning some of the newer things or gaining new skills, which is great. And I'm actually kind of jealous. Yeah. And I also did a bite size training too. So, you know, 40 minutes, 30 minutes, 15 minutes sometimes. And I was really also focused on getting some certifications as well under my belt. Uh, So I took the, uh, I participated in the Camtasia certification and Camtasia is a really fancy video editing software. When you purchase the software, you can actually enroll in their academy. And I was able to do that and I completed it in a couple of weeks. But after completing it, I, after completing it, uh, I did feel a sense of accomplishment that I could actually do projects and I could actually do my own YouTube videos and training content that is, is at a better or higher quality than, than the previous ones I've made before. So yeah, all bite-sized and just taking the moments just to really um, improve incrementally. And then if you're not really into it, then just stop there. <laughs> you, know, you didn't invest that much of your time and energy on it. Yeah, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Because I would love to get better at uh, Fusion 360 for uh, the 3D design. But right cool. now, I'm just doing Tinkercad because I don't, I don't <laughs> have the time to really learn all the intricacies of creating slopes and gradients and, and all that stuff. I want to. I would love to. It's just that there aren't enough hours in the day. So I yeah. totally get where you're coming from. And like I said, I'm a little jealous because you were able to play a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So tell us about your new career in training. Yeah, I I just uh, I was asked a question one time by a coworker, and she was saying, "How do how do you get good at training?" And and just my my role, my response was, "I just do it often as often as I possibly can." So in my primary role, I, I train uh, staff and uh, through virtual means mostly uh, due to the pandemic, and just help them with technology questions. So it could be. Uh, helping them do something on Outlook or Google Drive or pivot tables on Excel. And it, yeah, that's that's kind of like my main focus, uh, but also kind of developing more of courses and workshops uh, through my organization and just doing it as often as humanly possible. And And I believe that training and change can happen in 90 seconds or it can happen within a six-month period. And uh you just got to celebrate the small victories when, when you do get them uh, because, you know, you could create a video for staff and have very low engagement in it. But if you do a demonstration and that was only for like 90 seconds, you might even get a, a better, more positive response with that. So I've learned that the amount of time you invest in something doesn't equal, doesn't always give you a, re, a good return. Uh, so when you do get a return on your investment, just celebrate that. And, when I mean like training as often as or whenever possible, I mean, just, I truly mean that, uh, you know, just staying in touch with friends during the pandemic and teaching them skills and having them teach you skills, uh, doing the same with for family, you know, having, helping a family member with their device. And then as a result, 
you might learn something or something that perhaps Apple did or, or Android did that you were unaware of, and then you pick up a skill there. Uh, so it, I just, it's one of those things that you just kind of have your ears open for all situations. And when you have that mindset, you're bound to kind of be enriched and get opportunities and be exposed to situations that you probably weren't going to be if you were just kind of doing the, the regular, you know, nine to five kind of job. And then lastly, uh, just one of the things that's really helped me these past like two years is uh, just getting really better at curating my, my contacts and LinkedIn and really following industry professionals, in this case, training professionals. And, and there's some really good and generous uh, instructional designers and people in learning and development, and they share tips and articles. And all you have to do is just find them, curate them, follow them. And if you reach out to them, some of them are very generous and they will actually respond back to you. Uh, so I've been doing a little bit of that, just some networking and kind of cold calling a little bit, coming out of my, my comfort uh, zone a little bit there. But people have been really generous. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to connect with you again, Chris, is that uh, I just wanted to connect with you and then I just emailed you and then you responded. And that's how kind of things happen, right, is, they, is that first knock. Absolutely. And you never know what's going to happen until you knock on that door. And as we're talking, it just occurred to me that you need to talk to Maurice Coleman from the um, uh, what's the name of his library. And this is where Maurice would be yelling and screaming at me because I don't remember. Um, I believe it's the Hartford County Library in Maryland. Uh, he is the host of a podcast, giving him a shameless plug here. T is for training. It, so he is a library trainer and he uh, works with Paul Signorelli, who's from the San Francisco Bay Area, and Jill Hurst-Wall from the Syracuse, New York area, and a whole other cast of characters. I've been on a few times. I'd love to be on again. You would be a, a shoe-in. And they, they, they do it monthly, and I think I'm going to have to make that invite happen because it, Maurice is one of the most generous, outgoing, and just amazing colleagues you can have when it comes to talking about training, talking about library world. And he will be the first one to break your chops to the point where you're turned into chop meat. So I'm gonna, after we're done with the podcast today, I'm going to do a, an email intro to you and Maurice and, and, Thank you. and Jill, because I think I appreciate that. that would be a lot of fun. And I would listen to that podcast. And I <laughs> Thank you so much. It would be so <laughs> much fun. So having a new business that's centered around you instructing must be a challenge because of all the marketing and work that goes into getting your name out there kind of touched on this with, you know, knocking on the door. What's your advice for others who may want to, you know, take that plunge into leaving the library world and you're not really leaving the library world per se, but in terms of having that nine to five daily job, you know, taking that plunge and starting your own training company, but still having that desire to freelance and teach at other libraries. So, what could you share with with your what you've learned in your experience doing this? Yeah, I've learned a couple of things <laughs> for sure. <laughs> you know, it's really start slow and work at your own pace. I think uh, the, I guess the drawback to social media and LinkedIn and other aspects is that uh, you I guess you inevitably see other people's progress or they there's some boastful people out there. So you just kind of learn how to tune out those people because they're at their own pace, their own lane, and. And just really follow your own journey and start slow and, and start with baby steps like reaching out to some of some professional at a different library system or 
uh, like Maurice Coleman. Yeah, it's, it's those slow starts because you never know what is going to end up, you know, opening for you if anything opens for you. <laughs> so that's one of those things. And then attend workshops through like advocacy groups, uh, Eventbrite. They have a whole bunch of trainings there that you can network and meet other like-minded individuals. Uh, you also may want to start redefining yourself and your experience. Uh, so, for example, um, our experience is full of library jargon, so you may have to just reinterpret uh, some of that language. For example, like uh, patrons, you know, you could probably have, you might have to change it to customers, uh, library staff, just say uh, colleague or staff, you know, those kinds of things. And that might help open up different avenues for you outside of the library world. And then there's all a bunch of resources like on LinkedIn Learning that that you can incorporate and just kind of get better at some of the uh, the technology that you want to learn. But ultimately it comes down to proving it. Like when you meet someone who may want to hire you and may be interested in what you have to offer is that you really want to have something in your back pocket that proves what you know. And, you know, that could be in the shape of a portfolio, uh, a couple of slideshows, a couple of videos that you've made, a couple of recordings of yourself actually teaching, having those things in your back pocket, are really great. And especially in a virtual space where you're doing mostly a virtual interview, having those um, samples ready on hand uh, are really critical because then you can share your screen. You can show them that this is my work. This is what I know what to do. And then I think lastly, uh, this is a, this is a big one. When you give someone a yes, like you want to work on this project, you have to also give a no to something else. Uh, so just keeping those boundaries boundaries in place. So what I mean by that is if I say that I'll do this program at 6 p.m., that means that that's going to impact my dinner time with my family on that Monday. And am I, am I truly willing to make that, that sacrifice? Uh, maybe yes, maybe no. So you're gonna, you have to weigh it with those, um, with that mindset. And I think that that's really apparent with people who are very generous, like myself too, is that you kind of want to be a people pleaser and say yes to everything. But uh, you want to be a little bit more selective with your with your yeses. And you know what that last part that you said about when you say yes to something, you're saying no to something else. That really, really rings with me because I'm a yes guy. You know, I'll say yes to just about anything. And then my wife will say, "Did you check the calendar? I think our kid has practice that night." I'm like, "Oh." So I get it 100 percent. And I think I never really had it verbalized to me before. So that it really rings true to me. So I, now it's going to be in my head from that one. It's going to be Carlos on my shoulder saying, did you say you're saying no to, to Courtney's tennis practice? You're saying no to Julie's this? So, yeah. So you got me with that one, man. That was great. Thanks, Chris. So let's take a short break. And when we return, we're going to chat with Carlos about well-being and accessibility in library programs, which I think is really important nowadays. Because even if we're going back to an, an in-person programming environment, there's still going to be a hybrid and you're still going to have people who may or may not want to do one or the other. So we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, it's Chris from the Library Pros, and I want to tell you about the book, Best Technologies for Public Libraries, Policies, Programs, and Services. I, along with Nick Tanzi and James Hutter, both amazing technology librarians and previous guests on this podcast, co-authored the endeavor. If you're interested in bringing 3D printing, augmented reality, 
virtual reality or drone flying to your library, this book has what you need. It's a roadmap to successfully implementing this technology because we cover purchasing, developing effective policy, finding the right software, and have model programs and services already designed to make planning programs easier. You can find the book on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever you buy books or ebooks. I hope you'll check it out. Okay, we're back with Carlos Galliana. So before we talk about digital well-being, can you explain the definition of digital well-being and with teaching classes remotely or even in person, how you provide maximum accessibility? Yeah, I, th I think uh, digital well-being has been something in my back of my mind for some time now. And just not having, you know, not being able to describe it in a meaningful way. And then one day... I started noticing that more of the larger tech companies started incorporating uh, digital wellness and digital well-being into the settings of their of their platforms. Uh, for example, if you got onto a Samsung phone, you would see probably a section on digital well-being. On uh, Facebook and Google, they also have some segments and some thoughts on, on those concepts. And in short, digital wellness and digital well-being is a, it's just a matter of managing the tech. In, in your daily life, you make the decisions and that is in the form of managing notifications, choosing the dark mode settings instead of the traditional bright uh, white background, using a paper planner instead of uh, a digital app on your phone that, that uh, for, for agendas, uh, using uh, blue light blocking glasses like the ones I'm wearing right now, um, instead of just kind of staring into the screen. And there's a, quite a variety of things. I'm just going to list out a few more. Sure. Uh, here's a few more options. Using the read aloud options instead of reading on the screen, uninstalling the apps you don't need or don't use, uh, reorganizing everything on your desktop, clearing up your inbox. It's just a matter of kind of tidying things up, being a little bit more um, uh, thoughtful in your approach, picking and choosing what you do use and what you don't use. Uh, Cal Newport is uh, a, a speaker and uh, an author, and he has a book on digital minimalism. And he really um, is a firm proponent of this. Um, and the way I've kind of started introducing this into like these classes that I'm leading is just very slowly. And um, I do have a program dedicated just for digital well-being that kind of gets more into the, the, the meat of things here. But it's being really subtle. So when I'm leading a virtual program and I do a screen share, I uh, just want to make sure my desktop is really clear. There's no extra stuff on there. If, if I'm going to be um, discussing accessibility and making sure my font choice is large, I can zoom in and zoom out as needed. My font choice is bold. I can have, um, if we're having an in-person class, offering a high contrast keyboard, some stylus pens, uh, if I'm making a video using captions, if I'm doing a presentation using like Comic Sans font, uh, because that helps English language learners see the letters a little bit clearer. So it's, there's all these like little minor things that if you, and they're all small steps. And if you do them, you end up having a program or a presentation that is really inclusive of everybody. So from the people that are really skilled at their job, and they just want to be a little bit more efficient to the people who are new to the computer or new to the iPad or uh, to the smartphone. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense because, you know, you want you want things to be as easy as possible. And 
just in terms of, as you're saying this, I'm thinking about a program that I did. Um, it was a YouTube video that was how to, um, it was actually, no, it was a photography class that I used for iPhone. And here I am in my basement with a background and everything. And I'm shooting with my iPad onto my phone and I'm realizing as I'm doing it, this is my personal phone. They're going to see all the apps that I have. And, and I'm like, you know what? There's nothing here that's going to be scary or weird or, you know, give any personal information out. But I'm like, yeah, this is kind of like a personal thing. So, you know, when I'm doing any kind of screen recording for, for a program, you're right. I kind of go and tidy things up first because, you know, yes, sometimes it's your, maybe it's your work machine, but sometimes it's not your work machine. And, you know, you don't want to have anything that's personal in nature, maybe pictures of your kids or even be mindful of what your desktop background is. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I like to do a kind of a solid black background. That's my desktop background for my phone and also for my uh, PC uh, for the screen share. And I real if I'm sharing my phone, my phone screen, I just move all my apps into like a folder. And then I just keep out all the apps that I am going to talk about in one place. And that just really keeps everything focused. That way, my the, my program participants aren't wandering and looking at all the other apps that I have showing and then i also turn off the notifications of all my text messages email social media accounts so that way you don't get any banner alerts as you're presenting yeah because that could be really embarrassing depending <laughs> on what your friends are texting you and that's happened to me in in-person classes i used to teach years ago on iphone like oh yeah. that's just my friend pete he's an idiot don't pay attention to him and then you quickly <laughs> and you say and this is what airplane mode is folks <laughs> yes <laughs> So I totally get that. So in terms of the concept of well-being and accessibility, what's your philosophy regarding the integration of concepts into a class of, let's say, an intro to Windows 10? Yeah, I like just having fun and being casual about it and not, you know, not having really be too serious about concept like digital wellness and accessibility. It's and one way you could be really subtle about it is you're doing your screen share and then, you know, there's the bright windows um menus there now they usually have like a bright white kind of grayish tone to them and then you can make a comment saying oh my gosh this brightness is really kind of giving me some eye strain let me show you how you can put it on dark mode or dark settings or you know if you're teaching a class about teams or outlook or google or gmail you know you start off with the bright mode first which is the traditional kind of white grayish background and then teaching students how they can use the high contrast mode or the dark mode just for to alleviate eye strain. And that's how you could be really subtle about it. And then you could be like, Oh, I, I don't know about you guys, but you know, I, I'm getting really annoyed by these marketing emails. So let me teach you how you can unsubscribe and tidy up your inbox. So you look for these key moments with during your presentation where you can introduce the topic rather than, rather than kind of presenting this onslaught of information to people. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And sometimes, like we were saying before, when you're in the middle of teaching, you have one of those teaching moments where you become the student, where a patron says, oh, did you know you could do this? And maybe you didn't know that. Or sometimes I would even kind of play dumb a little bit because that also breaks down that, that pierces that veil of teacher-student where now we're just a bunch of people together in a room and we're all learning from each other. And that's kind of like what I like to put forth when I am teaching a class because you know, yes, I may have a particular skill that I'm showing you, but I'm not the expert and we're all going to learn from each other. So, you know, having an almost self-deprecating attitude (laughs) while you're teaching 
it helps to break that ice as well. And I think that the more you can thaw that ice, the easier the class becomes. And then that's how you build um, people who come to your classes and tell other people about your classes. So that does make a lot of sense. And then tying in things you can do to your device to not stress you out, like not having your work email automatically pushed to your personal email or turning off notifications or making your screen go from that, that blue screen to more of an amber screen, maybe not just so much at night, but all the time. So, right. You know, because I've got blue blockers on, too. I mean, blue blockers, they're going to probably find out in 20 years. That's why we're all blind. <laughs> <laughs> so it does make a lot of sense. Yeah. In, in a way, um, tech uh, library tech classes and just programs in general at the library, they're, it's almost similar to stand up in a way because you never, really never know who's going to be there. And and you really you have to prepare as much as you can for every scenario, but there's it's really impossible to foresee everything. So you got to kind of go with the motions a bit. Yeah, and and you have to tell them ahead of time. Look, I'm going to screw something up. It happens, and you know you kind of roll with it. And I think yeah. the best classes are the classes where people laugh and have a good time because then they're they're more open to learning as opposed to it being a strict lecture like you're in school and now you all those horrible feelings of sixth grade come rushing back to you and all your bad study habits come back to you and all that it, once you break it down and you say look this this class is not that and it's not going to be that and yes there's going to be some hard parts to this class but there, there's no there shouldn't be pressure on the part of the, the the patrons who are attending your class and honestly there shouldn't be pressure on you either as the instructor because you know if you have a good group, or even if you don't start out with a good group, hopefully by the end it's a good group. And it's always nice to have one or two regulars who come because they can – they already know your shtick. So they kind of jump in and they help as well. <laughs> and, and that's one thing that I've always seen that's really kind of cool is that you know the people who are regulars will go, oh, he's going to do this next. Wait till you see this. And it's really kind of funny. It's almost like watching a movie for the third or fourth time. Yeah, so, that's great. So it's fun, you know, and it's really good. And it, it also, the unintended consequence or, or benefit of that is you've now built a relationship with someone. So now that you've built that relationship, that's one more person that's going to come to the library more often. And then they're going to tell their friends, and that's how we build it back in post-COVID. So, you know, makes a lot of sense. It really, really makes a lot of sense. So... As we all know, in conducting trainings and library tech classes, people have different abilities, and there's always at least one person who seems to fall behind the rest of the class or is unintentionally disruptive. We all had that person. So how do you introduce the concept of well-being and accessibility to, in this type of scenario where you get the cranky guy who just – his kids made him get this phone or – the, the hard of hearing person who would be that, that unintentional person where you have to repeat everything four or five times. How do you keep your cool in that situation when maybe the classmates aren't jumping in to help? How do you kind of, for your own well-being as well as for the, the, the students in the class? Yeah, I, I think one of the things I've learned that works really well is just having allies in your program, whether it's in person or virtual, especially virtual. And the virtual means it could be a moderator or facilitator, and that could be the role of, a, of another staff person or a volunteer or um, a co-collaborator co with you. And having that person support you as you, you know, 
uh, shine as your as as an instructor or program deliver person, and just having that person support you. If you don't have that person to support you, uh, just try to slow down as much as you can and give space to that person and their concerns. But at some point, you are going to have to kind of move on and proceed with the program. Uh, the sweet spot is what you said earlier, I think, is when you have uh, patrons helping other patrons. And I had a patron tell another patron said, oh, yeah, I attended this class two times. I feel more comfortable now. And then if you read the resource list and the slideshow that he shares with you after the program, uh, you're going to feel a lot better about what he's discussing. Uh, but re it's really important that you set up expectations early on. So with all my virtual library classes that I do, I make it really clear that it's going to be a mix of a slideshow. It's also going to be a demonstration. There's going to be a portion in there where there's going to be Q&A. And just kind of having that expectation. So when I do pause, I say, okay, I'm going to pause here for a sec. Is there, uh, does anyone have any questions? Please uh, unmute yourself or type them on the chat. You're kind of setting the stage uh, that uh, just uh, listen to the presentation first, and then you're going to be able to uh, voice your voice your concern or your question. I'll, and you're going to also want to do that in the program description too, is really be really explicit and really clear about what you're going to cover and what you hope to cover and what type of skill set is expected of the person that is going to be joining your program. And with virtual programs, you also have to be very precise in the sense of, I think in-person classes thrive really well with a smartphone basics class and a tablet class that's uh, a basics class, for example. But now with virtual programming, you have to be really clear is that this class will only focus on the iPhone or this class will only focus on Kindle devices uh, because time is so finite in the virtual space that people kind of tune out after like an hour or so. So you really want to be as clear and as precise as possible. Uh, previously, you know, I think I could really effectively teach Google Sheets and um, Excel online within like two hours really effectively. But now it's like either Google Sheets or Excel online. You can't really do both because it's just too much to cover. And then be sure to offer like a wraparound service. So after your program, make sure you have like a resource list and that could be in the form of YouTube videos that cover exactly what you talked about and then you, you find them. Uh, links to tip sheets by Microsoft or Google, uh, GCF Learn Free, uh, which offers free courses, having like some of the links there. And is, is that the kind of like wraparound kind of like service that after the class is over, you can still research and study on your own. Uh, so those, those are the kind of things that I've noticed is just being really clear with what you're going to talk about. And then when you, and then just kind of execute with that. Well, it's funny you said being specific about the type of class that you're doing. You know, I've had so many circumstances in teaching iPhone where people come in with a, a Samsung Galaxy. And you're like, well, you can stay because some of the general concepts apply. But I'm going to be talking about some very finite things that are that are unique to the, the Apple, you know, biosphere. So especially if it's a settings class, I'm going through that app and going through each setting in that app. And when I did allow them to stay, they almost became too disruptive because I said, well, where, where is that on my phone? Well, you don't have it on your phone because your phone is a different operating system. It's like trying to put, and I always use this example, which probably isn't the best example in the world when you're teaching a class, but it kind of translates. You know, 
your water pump just went in your Chevy and you went and you bought a Ford water pump. You know, it does exactly the same thing, but it's not going to work no matter what you do to try to make it work in your Chevy. It's just not going to work that way. So, or saying like, you know, you have, you're going to travel to to Europe and you're going to bring your hairdryer and there's no way that hairdryer is going to work in Europe because of the different plug. It does the same thing. It's the same exact concept. It's just, it's not going to work. It's it's just different. It's not wrong. It's not bad. It's We're not saying Android is, is better or worse than Apple or anybody else. It's just different. So, and after saying that people could stay, I kind of, I don't say you have to leave. Say, well, you know, that is a different device and you you are really going to be confused if you stay in this program. And they kind of, you let them make the decision on their own to say, well, you know what? I'll come back for the Android class. So you almost have to, again, you have to kind of, in the library world, you have to kill people with kindness and you have to let them almost make the decision for themselves, even though you're maybe 10% manipulating their decision because you don't want that disruption Every two minutes. Well, my phone doesn't have that. Well, because I've had that a couple of times where the, the class turned on that person. And you don't want to have that either. You don't want to have a full-blown you know, overthrow because of one person. You know, it's like... Mute me. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. You don't want to have that happen in the middle of the class because then it becomes disruptive for the class. And, and when you take people away from that bubble of having a good time, then the illusion is over and... The illusion that everybody's, you know, having a great time. It's not really illusion's probably not the best word, but you know you know what I'm trying to say, that that the vibe is getting destroyed because you have one, for lack of a better way to describe it, like a killjoy who's ruining it for everybody else. So I totally get where you're coming from. And having something that's specific. If somebody's coming for a Kindle Fire class and they're coming with a Kindle Paperwhite, again, you know, it's it's the Chevy water pump and a Ford, a Ford Chevy you know, water pump and a Chevy. It just doesn't it's not gonna be the same thing. But for me, there's a silver lining to that because that tells me there's a need for that class and it's another class we can develop. When you're talking about the resources you can give them at the end, I used to follow up because our, we call them tech 30s, our statistics for those one-on-one programs were kind of down. We use that as um, a jumping off point to say, here, because we give a handout, which is step-by-step, so go through the handout. If you have questions, bring the handout back with notes and schedule a Tech 30 with one of us. Now, you may not get me, but you're going to get somebody who's very qualified and have those specific questions ready to go because it makes the Tech 30 move a lot better than instead of just saying, I have this phone, I don't know how to use it. Say, well, I'm not sure what to do in this setting for airplane mode. How do I make this work? Or how do I increase the font size on my device? So if you can isolate it to these things that you're interested in that maybe you didn't get the first time around and you don't want to sit through another hour and a half to two-hour class... You know, it's a good way to feature other services that the library provides with with regard to whatever that is, whatever that tech training is. So I think you're hitting the nail on the head when when it comes to that, because you can feature and you can feature databases and you can feature other services that are available, whether it's like Libby, Overdrive, Hoopla, Canopy. You know, you can really you really give a whole bunch of different plugs for library services. And nine times out of 10, patrons are going to say, I didn't know you could do that. Wait, you can get movies for free? Wait, you can download a book and make it, and it'll read it to you? So there's a lot of crossover there, I think. And I think we really hit the nail on the head with that. So how did you come up with the concept of introducing digital well-being and accessibility into your programs? Was it because of COVID or was it because of the post-COVID burnout? 
or was it just the the pure nature of online learning where it's a, it's not watching a YouTube video as much as actually interacting with an instructor? Yeah, I think I started noticing the need for these concepts in our library programs uh, when I was meeting with someone in person a few years ago. And we had a we had a laptop and he was applying for a job and the mouse cursor is this white color and the website itself has a white background. It's just really bright. And he literally couldn't see his mouse cursor. He was and then his face was actually getting closer to the monitor. And I was just observing this. And then that gave me that was like my aha moment that this gentleman is the need is that this gentleman wants to apply for a job. The website has a white background. The mouse cursor has a white background. There's immediate barrier <laughs> there. So then I started thinking about, okay, could we change the color of the mouse cursor? So yes, you know, make it into a black background, uh, black color. Can we make the mouse cursor bigger? Yes. Can we even change the appearance of a website through an extension, you know, through like a dark mode, dark reader extension? So yes. So after doing some changes, we were able to help this person apply for a job. And then that, kind of was my aha moment that if we had that same kind of lens, you know, equity lens for that matter, with all our other programmings that we do, we can really help people be successful and really uh, kind of reach their kind of what they want to do in life, whether that's contact someone on Facebook or, you know, apply for a job or just get better at the workplace. And then COVID just made it more obvious, you know, just the, the inequities in our communities with in terms of digital access and just people struggling to stay engaged in an online environment. And, and the reason they're being, they're struggling for many reasons is because we're just bombarded and overwhelmed with, with notifications and email and this meeting and that meeting. So that's when I started introducing more of those concepts of, hey, if we can get a better handle on some of these notifications and these apps are constantly pinging us, we're going to be able to really focus more on the important things that we do care about and for our work and for our, our children too. And so COVID, you know, exacerbated it, made it more uh, noticeable, it kind of brought it up to the surface. Uh, but this is something I've been thinking about for some time, for some time now, is that it's really important that we introduce some of these topics of wellness and accessibility to all our computer classes from the very basics to the advanced ones and you as an instructor have to have your ears open because the, your patrons um, and your eyes open too. your patrons would give you some clues. And some of the clues are, uh, I can't see, you know, when the patron tells you, I can't see <laughs> it's like, stop the presses or something not right. Uh, or a patron tells you, I I'm pressing the button and nothing's happening. So that tells me that that person probably needs a stylus pen to help them be successful with their phone. So, or, um, I don't know where, you know, I don't know where my charger is, you know, so that person may need a different kind of charger that's longer, you know, the, the, you know, longer cord or something like that. So there are these minor changes that, that you can make that can really have an impact in someone's life. And it's not like people are buying like a whole new computer system, you know, or there's just these minor changes. Like another example could be, uh, and this is some of the advocacy work library staff can do is they can advocate for the installation of high contrast keyboards on some of the workstations. So that way, or at least have one handy. So that way if a patron is ever having a hard time seeing the keys, 
you know, you can sw switch switch one out. Uh, so making these minor changes, and often they're not that expensive to do, uh, could really be impactful to patrons in a really positive way. Well, you know, it's funny, again, you, you're talking about those aha moments where, you know, maybe the patron can't, maybe they, their fingers are too, lack of a better way to describe it, maybe they're too fat or maybe they're too skinny and they can't type the way they want to. So having a stylus, which you can buy personalized for, I think, 35 cents a piece now in some of the catalogs, that's a huge investment. And I would almost dare to say it could also be something that could be in compliance to help comply with ADA. Now, I don't know if arthritis necessarily is an ADA issue, but you always want to err on the side of being more inclusive when it comes to people who may have a potential disability. For lack of a better way to describe it, people with disabilities are being, if they're not willing to embrace the technology, they're being dragged into a kicking and screaming when, in fact, in my humble opinion, they should be excited because there's so many things that are available to them, meaning someone who has a disability, that would make their lives easier. Yes. Are the screens kind of small? Yes. But you can have it highlight the text and read the text to you instead. There's all kinds of things now with hearing aids where hearing aids can be plugged and, and synced to your phone. So you can use your phone as an external hearing device. There's so many different things that you can see. And sometimes, it's, like you said, it's just a matter of paying attention and watching. Sometimes what's even fun to do is, you know, how you, you go to a cafe, and maybe you people watch. Sometimes it's a good idea to sit and patron watch and see what people are struggling with and make some notes and then make some changes based upon what you see. And even if it's just one patron that's having that problem, if the one person is struggling that you're seeing, just because you just see one person struggling doesn't mean there aren't people that aren't struggling with it too. So think in terms of like a, a keyboard with larger fonts, like you said, with higher contrast or maybe backlit, changing some of your monitors, maybe putting amber um, filters on them or things like that, or even having disposable blue blocker glasses. You know, there, there's so many different things you can do, and we can sit and brainstorm for hours. I mean, in fact, listeners should actually do this as some homework. Sit and observe for an hour. Take an hour, not your lunch hour. Take it during, during your work time. I'll give you permission. I'm authorizing it. Go ahead and do some observing because we are constantly chasing the tail of programming, and we're trying to invent new things. But if we listen, maybe we can come up with five or six programs just by talking to a few patrons in the period of a day or watching some, watching the floor for an hour. So I think that, you know, what you're saying totally makes sense. And having that aha, mo aha moment may take place just by sitting back and watching. Yeah. Thank you, Chris. I think it's really incumbent on us as library staff to really spend a good 30 minutes on the accessibility settings of our respective devices and the more we know about those settings and the things that you can do, the more um, curious you're going to be about the possibilities of your phone or your tablet or your, your computer system. Basically, they all have them. We just got to look for them. They might be worded a little differently, like ease of access instead of accessibility. But just being curious about it is going to really open many doors for yourself and then also for your patrons. So what advice can you give fellow teachers, trainers, instructors out there in library land that are doing it every day in their libraries and working with their patrons and students. One of the most difficult things to do in libraries is to develop and implement programs of instruction that are going to resonate with the customer base, whether it's public, school, or a special library. Based on your varied experiences in the field, and now as a business model, what can you tell that library professional who has an idea for a program, needs to pitch it to administration, 
and then marketing and teaching and following up with one-on-one sessions, you know, and follow-up classes. So what would you say to them? Yeah, it's like we can have all the excitement in the world for a certain program because we think it's the, the best thing to do and our patients think that's the best thing to do. But at the end of the day, our the folks, you know, signing the checks or approving the program proposals uh, or doing the marketing, they, they need to have something tangible. And that's where you kind of need to like prove it. You really need to get into the mindset of having something to show before it actually happens. And that could take, that could take in the shape of many different things. So that could be, organizing a, a, a small campaign with some of your patrons and writing comment cards and really having some momentum there that could be doing like a pilot program that could be uh, doing a dress rehearsal kind of thing of a, of a mock program. Uh, it could also be most importantly is creating like a charter that covers your who, what, when, and where of your program and then really specifically budget. Uh, sometimes um, us as professionals, we kind of shy away when it comes to the dollars and cents piece. But the more research that you can do with the financial aspects of it, including taxes and shipment fees and installation fees, if needed, that's going to make your case more compelling because you've done all the homework. And when it comes to that presentation piece, it, it your goal as as a program proposal and a person proposing programs, whether it's through the library or a different organization, is you want to make it as easily as humanly possible for that person to make that decision, whether it's a yes or a no. Uh, you want to do everything in advance that gives them the ability to, to confidently say, this is a yes because of this reason, or this is a no because of that reason. And you don't want to leave like no stone unturned. Uh, it's kind of a similar approach with IT issues. So when you're documenting an IT issue, you want to be able to have a clear picture of what happened. So when it does go to the IT staff, they don't have to like second guess and know, did this person do this? Did that person do that? What's the ID number of the machine? Make it as easy as humanly possible for them to do their job. And then, uh, and the similar thing with incident reports, right? Make it as easy as humanly possible for, for management to review that incident. And that's the thing with incident, with program proposals and starting new, new classes is that we really, us, it's incumbent on us as to do the homework and to really, really prove that this is a success because it's when we have finite resources and staff availability, uh, like I mentioned earlier, one yes means a no to something else. Do you have any last words of advice for somebody who is thinking of going out on their own? Yeah, just uh, just take it slow, take it easy. Uh, follow your own follow your own guidance, your own path, and do it because it's fun and you're passionate about it. And just know that some people won't be excited about what you're trying to do or you're proposing, but there will be people that are excited about it and are really interested about about some of the ideas that you have it's kind of an up and down wave of of connecting with people and you're going to meet all kinds of interests there but it's exciting i i feel like it's it's a great way to make connections and some of them are 
flourish. Some of them don't. And it's just a matter of, of getting yourself out there. It's risky. It's feel a little unsafe about it sometimes, but you'd be surprised. I, my experience has been that people are out there pretty generous and pretty interested about some of the things that you may be into and just finding those like-minded individuals. And then uh, lastly, just investing yourself. You know, so if you invest in the software that you think is going to help you be successful and there's no, there's no substitute for real hands-on experience. For me, my, the software that I really invested in was Camtasia because I really wanted to learn photo uh, video editing. So I, you know, I paid up front for that and that has paid dividends for me because that's made me more of a successful, confident, most importantly, video editor. So now I could really approach any project and know how I would tackle that project and how long that would take me to do that rather than agreeing to do a project and then learning <laughs> Camtasia and then doing it and then taking you twice as long. You know, you kind of want to put that investment early on, you know, head on first and then watch it pay dividends for you later on. And take the stress away of having to learn it while you're doing it because you had a deadline they have to work on. Exactly. So I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day again for coming on for a second time. This has been great. And to speak to us about digital well-being and accessibility and all this great stuff that comes along with that, it's really important and it's something that actually should be talked about more, especially since we've all kind of learned that with all being locked down for eight months and you know not knowing what day it is and all that other horrible stuff that happened with COVID. So with regard to some plugs, we have carlosgaliana.com and uh, we'll put the links, of course, on, on our webpage and it'll show up on all the... The podcasting catchers. Okay, so it's uh, carlos.galliana0 at gmail.com. So it's C-A-R-L-O-S dot G-A-L-E-A-N-A-0 at gmail.com. If you're looking for someone to do some personalized virtual tech training. Uh, he's also on LinkedIn, so check him out over there. Reach out to him because he's a great asset. He's a mover and shaker, and he really knows what he's talking about. So, Carlos, thank you again for joining us today. Really appreciate yeah, it. Thank you. I just love the chances to talk to people, too. So if anyone's just curious just to have a conversation, I'm game for that, too. Awesome. Thanks again. Thank you. We have come to the end of another episode of The Library Pros, and we thank you for listening. If you have any questions or comments on this or any episode, click on the Contact Us form on our website, thelibrarypros.com. Visit us on Twitter at The Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com slash thelibrarypros. Don't forget to tell a friend or colleague and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Special thanks to our podcasting engineer, Dean Meyer. Remember, the opinions stated by The Library Pros and their guests are solely those of Chris and Bob and are not those of the Sachin Public Library, the MS Clark Memorial Library, or any other library. See you next time. You've been listening to the Library Pros Podcast. The Library Pros are brought to you by Pippin Productions and by the Library Pros themselves, Krista Christofaro and Bob Johnson. Special thanks to Sachin Public Library for providing space for this podcast. Until the next turn of the page, I'm your announcer, Carlton Welch.